following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Everybody, so glad that you are here, and we know we got a bunch of folks that have joined us online for this first Sunday of Lent. If you have a Bible with you or your mobile app, Let's go together to Matthew chapter 26. We got some work to do before we get there, but we're ultimately gonna be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. You know, when I used to teach uh, preachers at Dallas Seminary, one of the things that I suggested to them is a a good way to start a sermon, to kind of draw people into the sermon, to to the idea of the sermon, is to begin by asking a provocative question. Right, get people thinking right off the bat, kind of draw them in. So this morning, I, I wanna ask you a provocative question. I, I don't wanna have you answer out loud right away. In a minute, I'll give you the opportunity to respond, but, but first, I want you just to think about it. Right? Here's, the, here's the question. How are you? Yeah? Right? Okay, so not all that provocative, maybe. It's, a, it's actually a question that we use in casual, everyday greeting each other. Really, typically, when we ask the question, we don't actually expect a particularly deep, reflective answer, right? It's, it's more like just a, a, a form of greeting. And so we typically don't really think that much. In fact, if somebody really kind of goes there when we ask the question, we're sort of surprised and, and caught off guard. Because usually, when somebody asks the question, how you doing, our response is, Fine. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm great. Life's great. Everything's great. Maybe sometimes if we're a little bit more reflective or are a little bit more honest, we're like, I'm okay. You know, I'm doing all right. But it's not a question that we typically pose expecting us to go particularly deep in our response. And yet I think it's a good question for the beginning of Lent for us to actually think beneath the surface of this question, how are you? So over the course of these six weeks, we're gonna be asking that question, how are you? And we're gonna be looking at some of, our, some of our typical, some of our common responses to that question. Because here's the thing, it seems to me that we all kind of like to keep up appearances, right? to make our lives look like we've got our stuff together, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. We don't like to admit when our lives are messy, when our relationships are struggling, or when our circumstances are out of our control. And sometimes it seems to me that within the life of the church, we can actually wind up putting a pressure on each other to sort of pretend that everything is great. I'm great. Everything's great. As though somehow it's more spiritual for us to pretend to be something we're not to pretend to be somewhere that we're not. But beneath the surface, we often suffer from a kind of common set of spiritual maladies that plague our lives in the kind of world in which we find ourselves, the the world we're in, the kind of circumstances we're in, the kind of relationships that we're in. And yet we often don't wanna face the reality of what's beneath the surface. Leadership writer John Gardner captures the sentiment this way. He says, human beings have always employed an enormous amount of clever devices for running away from themselves. We can keep ourselves busy, fill our lives with so many diversions, stuff our heads with so much knowledge, involve ourselves with so many people, and cover so much ground that we never have time to probe the fearful and wonderful world within. By middle life, 
Most of us have become accomplished fugitives from ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I know that I can often live my life an accomplished fugitive from myself. And then we encounter Lent. At IBC, we talk about Lent being a season of reflection, repentance, and renewal. A season of reflection where we look beneath the surface, a season where we do some spiritual introspection to to examine what's going on in our lives, to, to do that work of probing the fearful and wonderful world within. A season of repentance where we turn away from some of these patterns that have uh, tripped us up and and held us back and and they're choking the life out of our soul. A season of renewal where we ask God to birth new things, new life in us. And so over these weeks, we'll be asking that question, how are you? And we'll be looking beneath the surface to uncover these spiritual struggles that our common answers sometimes cover over. And we'll consider the resources that the tradition of Christian spirituality has to answer to help us address these struggles. And today we're going to look at the way we tend to answer the question by saying, I'm I'm fine. The way we navigate the complexity of our emotional experiences. Now, I want to just say right off the bat that this isn't one of those sermons that's like three steps to overcoming all your emotional struggles. I don't have a silver bullet, a a magic formula that's going to immediately solve all of our challenges with our emotions, as though our emotions are a challenge to be solved to begin with. This is not a sermon like that. Three simple steps, right? Magic formula, silver bullet, because reality is far more complicated than that. The reality of God and the reality of our emotions. In fact, I love the way that Heidi Goman says it in her book, Emotions in the Gospel. She says, emotions are complex. And God is complex. And it's okay to have a complicated relationship with both. The grace of Jesus Christ is available for both our relationship with God and our relationship with our emotions. And so my task as a pastor isn't to take the complexity out of God or out of our emotions, because for me to do that would be for me to lead you into unreality. Rather, my task is to try to help us navigate the complex reality in which we find ourselves when it comes to both God and our emotions. And, and talking about the complexity of all this in a church like ours is, is especially complicated. It's especially complicated because we find ourselves in an increasingly multi-ethnic and multi-generational church. And our cultural background and our generation has significant impact on the way that we, we think about, we experience, and we express emotion. Right? There are some cultures that are naturally more prone to be very expressive in terms of emotions, and there there are other cultures that that have a greater tendency to sort of tamp that down, to to be more, kind of suppress emotions, hold that close, hold that within. The same is true with regard to generations. Some generations are much more prone to, to hold back that emotional expression, to keep those things close inside. Other generations have sort of been shaped to be very unfiltered in the expression of emotion. And my task today isn't to provide a one-size-fits-all solution to all of our emotional issues. It is rather to help us think about 
how we navigate the complicated reality of our emotional experiences and integrate that into our life with God. Now, I'm using that word navigate very deliberately because our English word emotion actually comes from a Latin root that just means to move. And you can even see the connection, right, when we say something like, that moved me. And so the issue with our emotions is that they move us. The question is where? You see, oftentimes I think we're taught, and especially if you grew up in church, you may have been taught either explicitly or implicitly, implicitly that there are good emotions and bad emotions, that there are emotions that you're supposed to feel and emotions that you're not supposed to feel. And if you're feeling those emotions that you're not supposed to feel, you don't let anybody know. You pretend to be somewhere you aren't. Um, or we, we are taught in many different ways to think about emotions as um, our emotional expression as either we're strong or we're weak. And I just want to suggest to you that, that I think that's really wrong-headed thinking. That rather than thinking about emotions as good or bad, right or wrong, strong or weak, we just recognize they're human. That it's not good emotion, bad emotion. It's human to feel that way. It's not strong or weak. It's human to feel the way we feel. Our emotions move us. The question is, where do they take us? And it seems to me that our emotional experience can either draw us toward God or push us toward our strategies. Right? They can draw us toward God or they can push us toward our strategies, our strategies for coping with the vandalism of shalom. Now, some of you that have been around IBC for a while, you're tracking with me. Others of you are going, oh, wait, what? I was, he's like, I was tracking with you till that little piece. What is, what is strategies for coping with the vandalism of shalom? Well, this is a concept that I introduced to IBC actually years ago, and we've talked about it from time to time through those years. Shalom is this rich biblical word, this Hebrew word, translated as peace, but it means so much more than peace. It means wholeness, harmony, flourishing, delight, everything being the way that it's supposed to be. Everything being in alignment with God's intention. And the fact of the matter is, all of us know that we don't live in a world like that. We don't live in a world where everything is the way that it's supposed to be. Moreover, I am not the way that I am supposed to be. That we live in a world in which shalom has been broken, has been vandalized. And from there, then, we develop these strategies. From, from very early on in our lives, we develop strategies for coping with the world when the world is not the way that it's supposed to be and I'm not the way that I'm supposed to be. I'll never forget the first time I introduced this concept. Some of you will remember, it was like 15 years ago. And the night before I was to preach this sermon where I was first time introducing the concept of the vandalism of Shalom, um, what I often do on Saturdays before I preach is I'm, I drive. And as I drive, I just kind of run the sermon in my head. And so that evening I was driving, I was actually over in Grapevine and I was coming along the access road to Highway 121 and, and I realized, I had this moment of, of realization that my on-ramp that I wanted to get on the freeway was coming up pretty soon. And here's the thing, I, I, was, I was in a good headspace, like I was feeling really good about the sermon, um, just felt like calm, confident, at peace. I was experiencing glimpses of shalom as I'm driving along. But I had this realization, I need to get over to get onto the on-ramp. And yet I looked over my shoulder and there's a, a car back there behind me. And so I did what you do. I very courteously, politely 
put on my blinker to let the gentleman know that I would be coming over to get onto the on-ramp. Now, there was enough space that all he had to do was just tap the brake just a little bit. And there was plenty of room for me to pull over in front of him and pull onto the on-ramp, right? No, no, no. What What does he do? He sees my blinker and he starts to speed up. So what do I do? I speed up in front of him and I pull over in front of him and I pull on the freeway and off I go. Well, he didn't like that so much. So he pulls up alongside of me, right? Speeds up, pulls up alongside of me. He looks over at me. I look over at him. He gestures to me. I gesture to him. Not the same gesture. Not the same gesture. I'm a pastor after all. And suddenly, I've gone from being all at peace, wholeness, harmony, flourishing, delight. That guy vandalized my shalom. Right? Now, That is a very silly example of a very serious reality, right? We we all live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the issue then becomes, what do you do with all that? What comes out of you when things in the world and, and things inside are not the way they're supposed to be? And from very early on in our lives, we begin to develop strategies for coping with the vandalism of shalom. Strategies like strategies of control, right? When when life feels like it's out of control, my circumstances feel out of control, I want to tighten my grip, right? I want to do everything in my power to try to control circumstances. And when I can't control the circumstances, I try to control people. Strategies of control. Strategies of distraction. When things in my heart and things in my world are not the way they're supposed to be, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to to look away. And so I find things that that can just distract me from actually having to face reality. Strategies of numbing. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to feel this way. And so I reach for something that's going to make me feel better. Some cheap shalom substitute. I self-medicate, strategies of numbing, strategies of aggression. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. Or sometimes the way it plays out, you hurt me, I'll hurt somebody else. It goes out sideways. Sometimes it's you hurt me, I hurt myself. Right? Rather than lashing out, I lash in. Or the one that I think I probably have most in my playbook Strategies of performance. When the world's not okay and I'm not okay, I just put on a good face and fake it. Strategies for coping with the vandalism of shalom. And when we feel big, heavy feelings, those feelings move us. The issue is where do they move us? Do they draw us closer to God or do they push us further toward our strategies? Now I wanna look with you at this passage from the life of Jesus that I think gives us some insight into how we think about navigating the complexity of our emotional experience. I wanna say again, this is not three simple steps to solve all your emotional struggles. 
right? This is not a silver bullet. This is not a magic formula. But I do think we see something in the emotional experience of Jesus and how he navigates it that can be helpful for us. And it's just worth underscoring, Jesus is the fully human one. He is fully God and fully human. And so he shows us what the full human experience looks like. I read a blog post uh, this week that talked about um, the idea that this uh, author read through the gospels and found 39 different emotions that Jesus experienced. Isn't that interesting? 39 different emotions. I didn't know there were 39 different emotions. Actually, that's not true. I have two Enneagram fours that live in my house. They can sometimes experience all 39 of those emotions within a very compressed period of time, right? But, uh, but we see here in the life of Jesus this full emotional experience. And here he experiences some very heavy emotions. I think it's worth watching what he does. So let's pick up in verse 36 of Matthew 26. This is the night before Jesus went to the cross. And we read, then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and they began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The story plays out in a little garden called Gethsemane. It's a little garden across the Kidron Valley up on the side of the Mount of Olives. And you can go there today and actually see the olive grove with ancient olive trees growing there on the side of the mountain. The word Gethsemane literally comes from two Hebrew words that just mean olive press. This is the place where they had an olive press on the side of the Mount of Olives. And it was a place that Jesus would go and, and be with his friends. But I think it's very poignant that this is the place where Jesus goes and has this experience. You can go there today and they actually show you what an ancient Uh, olive press would have looked like. They would have a post in the middle of the room with a large stone basin and then a large stone uh, roller and they would actually hook up a donkey and have that donkey walk around um, so that that roller would roll around the basin. You put the olives in the basin and they press the oil out of those olives. They crush the olives. It's very poignant that Jesus has this experience in this place, this place where he is pressed upon by the weight of of the reality of his circumstances. We have another gospel writer who tells us his sweat became like drops of blood. He was literally having capillaries that were bursting because of the pressure that he was feeling, knowing what he was facing. And Matthew tells us that he was sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And it strikes me that some of us, based on our background, our experience, our growing up, especially if we grew up in church, some of us might actually try to talk Jesus out of his emotions, to talk Jesus out of the way that he was feeling. Right? We might say, Jesus, don't feel that way. You don't need to feel that way, Jesus. It's all gonna be okay, Jesus. It's all gonna work out in the end, Jesus. Right? We might even quote scripture to him. We know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Don't feel that way, Jesus. 
We might even give him a good slogan he can hang on to, faith over fear, right? Jesus, just trust God. It's gonna be okay. This is not a matter of Jesus being wrong. It's a matter of Jesus being human. It's not a matter of Jesus being weak. It's a matter of Jesus being human. And if you are here this morning and you have ever felt that, overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death, if you're walking through a season right now, Jesus wouldn't try to talk you out of the way you feel. He would say, I know just what that feels like. I'm here. I'm with you. When we look at this, we see first that Jesus names his emotional reality. And I think that's just a helpful recognition for us, that Jesus here names his emotional reality. Daniel Siegel talks about this concept of name it to tame it. And that may sound a little bit trite, but there's something profoundly true about our ability to put a name to what we're experiencing, to what we're feeling. It's why Brene Brown, her new book is called The Atlas of the Heart, in which she spends the entirety of that book mapping 87 different human emotions so that we're better able to give a name to what it is that we're feeling. In that book I mentioned earlier, Emotions in the Gospel, um, Heidi Goman actually goes through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and she catalogs, in what she says is not an exhaustive list, but she catalogs 268 different emotion words found in the Bible. Some of you may be familiar with the emotion wheel, or if you're not, I would suggest that after the service you Google it. it. might be a really helpful tool for you. It's an emotion wheel that just begins at the center with some core emotions, but moves out from there with some greater specificity to help us describe our emotional experience. We actually have a couple of pastors who have the emotion wheel on a throw pillow in their office. And it's just a helpful tool for, for them to kind of be able to, to name their emotional experience, but also as they're walking with other people to be able to help them name the reality of their emotional experience. Because there's something about the way that God has designed us that when we're able to name our emotional experience, it, it helps us to navigate. It, it helps us to respond to what it is that we're experiencing. This is actually um, connected even to neuroscience. Daniel Siegel, who I mentioned before, has a helpful little way of describing what goes on in our brains. And I wanna just do this with all of you. Everybody hold up your hand just like this, right? It's kind of a model for our brain, okay? And you fold your thumb in on the palm of your hand and you close your fingers down over that thumb, right? And this is actually a really helpful model for what's going on in our brains. You have your brain stem that sends signals from the rest of your body up into your brain. You have the lower part of your brain and here is your limbic system, including right about where your thumbnail is, your amygdala. And then over that, you have your your upper, the upper part of your brain, this is your cortex. And right here along the, um, your fingernails is what's called the prefrontal cortex. Right, super helpful, we might say handy way to describe what's going on in your brain. Sorry, that's, that's Siegel's joke, not mine, so I can't take the blame for it. Now you can put your hands down, but, but, but think about this with me for a minute. You have your, um, these signals that go up to your brain, and then you have this lower part of your brain, your limbic system and your amygdala. That is the emotional part of your brain. Um, 
And sometimes when we feel big emotions and our emotions overwhelm us, some refer to that as an amygdala hijack. Your amygdala has taken over. And that's where we experience emotion. But then you have the cortex that covers over that, the upper part of your brain. And that's the rational part of your brain, right? That's where you're able to, to think and, and process. And then you have the prefrontal cortex, which is the place of integration between your lower emotional brain and your upper rational brain. The idea isn't just be rational about this. Like don't feel the way you're, just be right. That's not the idea at all. The idea is integration. And when you're able to give a name to what you feel, it helps that integration between the different parts of your brain so that you're not so overwhelmed by that lower emotional part, but you've integrated the two parts of your brain. This is the way that God has made us. It's so helpful for us just to name our emotional reality. Now, to be clear, naming our emotional reality doesn't make it go away. It didn't make it just go away for Jesus, and it doesn't do that for us either. But it brings us into reality and helps us navigate where our emotions are taking us. Jesus names his emotional reality. Second, we see that Jesus is honest with his feelings with trusted friends. And Jesus is honest about his feelings with trusted friends. Right? He, he takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, his guys, he takes them further in with them. And he says, stay here and pray. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He shares his emotional reality with these trusted friends. And this, once again, is connected to the way that God has designed us, the way God has wired us. Heidi Goman, once again, from Emotions of the Gospel, says, research from the field of interpersonal neurobiology tells us that while suffering does impact our ability to regulate our emotions, sharing our experiences and feeling seen and heard by someone else brings us a sense of integration. We need people in our lives to sort through our emotions with us. But perhaps we might also, I love this, we might also grow from simply witnessing the hurts and joys of our shared humanity alongside one another. What a beautifully suggestive little phrase. Right? We might grow simply by witnessing the hurts and joys of our shared humanity alongside one another. Now, I'm aware that some of you may say, yeah, but Barry, my, my friends have let me down. Right? You may say, nobody's there for me. To which I would say, Jesus knows that feeling too. Because if you know the story, his closest friends let him down in his moment of need. But here's what I can also tell you. He never will. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That when you have trusted in him, you are never alone. That he will be there with you and for you. But I think it's also important just to acknowledge that sometimes for us to process this with someone we trust means that we need to connect with a professional. That maybe you need to sit with a pastor to process some of what you're experiencing. And we would love to have the opportunity to connect you with one of our pastors who can just sit with you, be with you, process with you. And maybe you need to see a counselor, a therapist, to spend some time working through some of your experience. 
And, and I hope you know, this is a church wherein there's no stigma in that. That's not something that we see as weak or unhealthy. It's something that we see as a mark of health and maturity to say, I need to process this with somebody who's got some tools and some skills and some insights. Many of our pastors either have or are currently in counseling and therapy. And we ever are a church wherein there's no stigma. In fact, we would love to help connect you with a trusted counselor, somebody with whom you can process your emotional experience. Jesus names his emotional reality. Jesus is honest about his feelings with his trusted friends. But then ultimately we see that Jesus surrenders himself and his circumstances to the Father. Right, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. God, if it's possible, change my circumstances. But ultimately, help me trust you in the middle of my circumstances. God, I would love for you to change my circumstances, but in the middle of them, change me. This brings us back to the 12 steps of recovery we talked about just before the first of the year. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made the decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Grant, Lord, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Jesus surrenders himself and his circumstances to the Father. Now you might say, yeah, Jesus surrendered and that didn't turn out for him so well. To which I would say on the contrary, no. That even in his suffering and through his suffering, Jesus found a deep joy that sustained him in and beyond the suffering that he experienced. The author of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, let us, because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us set aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him who endured such hostility at the hands of sinners that you might not grow weary and lose heart. There was a joy set before Jesus that enabled him to endure his suffering. And that joy was the joy of knowing that what he was going through meant Rescue, renewal, redemption for you and me and the world. It meant relationship and healing and transformation and hope for you and me and the world. Jesus found a joy that sustained him in and through and beyond his suffering. Consider him who endured such hostility at the hands of sinners that you might not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, emotions are not good or bad. They're human. Being emotional isn't about being weak or strong, but being human. The issue is, what do we do with them? Where are emotions taking us? They can draw us closer to God or push us further toward our strategies. 
So where are your emotions taking you? How are you doing? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can look beneath the surface of our lives with confidence, knowing that we are loved by you, knowing that our lives are in your hands, knowing that we can trust you even when we feel overwhelmed. We thank you for Jesus, fully God and fully human, who shows us what the fully human life looks like that we can look to him in this moment as an example that helps us and sustains us and gives us hope. And I pray for any here this morning who need some hope today, that you would meet them here and now, that you would breathe hope and breathe life and breathe comfort and breathe joy into their lives, into their circumstances, in the reality, the complicated, complex reality right where they are. And Father, as we approach communion, we know we can reflect before you with confidence of knowing your love for us. And so we pause now to examine our hearts before we come to these elements. Father, we thank you that we know that we can approach your throne not as, um, as uh, scared servants, but as beloved children. That you lavish your grace on us in the Lord Jesus. And we remember that now as we partake of these elements. And we pray it all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.